All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. Yes, the firewall has been engaged and all malicious malware has been deleted. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. This is Adario Strange here with Fix Song. And this week, we're going to take a little bit of a maybe a different turn for the Mars Podcast. We're going to talk about hacking and email leaks and just the the dark world of uh, uh, all that entails. Uh, actually, well, later we're going to talk about the movie Snowden uh, by director Oliver Stone. It actually came out in September, and it's still in a few theaters, but for a number of reasons, there was a lot of news that came out in the last few weeks. We didn't get around to really talking about it in depth, so we're going to talk about Snowden the movie later. But leading up to that, we're going to talk about a couple of topics that are, I guess, related. First of all, WikiLeaks. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. The the name that uh, some dare not utter has been in the news. So, so as most of everyone knows, we are in the last, the waning weeks of the U.S. presidential election. And like- what Thank God and also, oh, my God, at the same time about that. But Thank yeah. God and oh, my God. Yes. And so as the you know the weeks have uh, drawn on, we have had kind of like a drip drip from WikiLeaks of leak after leak after leak. I guess the so far the biggest one is from the Hillary Clinton campaign chairman's uh, John Podesta, who apparently got caught up in an email phishing scam. So apparently what happened was – he got an email uh, that his e- that his Gmail account had been compromised by some hacker in Ukraine, and he checked with like some IT guy at the Hillary Clinton organization, and for whatever reason, this genius IT person said, "Yes, that is an authentic email. Yes, go ahead and follow its advice." In fact, it was a phishing email, and it was from a fake email address, and the link to change his password was, you know, it was from a hacker. So that led to John Podesta getting hacked. And now we have this rolling series of emails from John Podesta. Um, I think one of the biggest ones was, well, one of the early ones. And I'm not sure we if we talked about this, but um, did you hear about the Blink 182 guitarist, uh, Tom DeLong? Oh, my God. This is like jogging a memory, but <laughs> yeah. I can't. I can't. So basically, oh my God, it's at the tip of my tongue. What happened? It was the UFO thing. And it was basically, right. you know, this guy from Blink 182 trying to talk to John Podesta about UFOs and, you know, what's really real? And, you know, is, is Area 51 <laughs> like a real thing? And then, of course, we know that he has, you know, John Podesta has made a number of comments about various people in politics, around politics. In fact, uh, the rapper Killer Mike even uh, was mentioned at one point. And uh, I think um, John Podesta said something along the lines of it's unclear what he was responding to, but uh, he said something along the lines of um, uh, I think he didn't get the message, which I guess meant some sort of because Killer Mike is kind of like this known, uh, I guess you would call him Democrat politician supporter. And so I guess there was some sort of line maybe he was supposed to tow or whatever. So what this has resulted is resulted in is Killer Mike has actually put out T-shirts with uh, this line from the hacked emails. So the hacked emails have actually turned into a T-shirt in that case. 
So we go from UFOs to rappers selling T-shirts. Uh, then on another side, we actually had the Goldman Sachs speeches released. These are the speeches that Hillary Clinton gave for large sums of money to uh, various, um, I guess, Wall Street entities, in this case, Goldman Sachs. And Bernie Sanders kept hitting her throughout the primaries about, you know, release the transcripts, release the transcripts. She never released them. And then finally, WikiLeaks did the job for him. But it was too late because she had already won the Democratic nomination. But uh, now those speeches are out there. Uh, and then also we know um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz essentially lost her job because of these <laughs> leaks. Um, I mean, this, these leaks have had great impact. Um, basically, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the uh, former chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee, was basically seen in some of these emails as, I guess you would say, I'll just say putting her thumb on the scale in favor of Clinton versus uh, Bernie Sanders. Some light sabotaging going on. Not sabotage. like real sabotaging. Sabotage light. Yeah, sabotage. Kind of sabotage. So this is uh this has been like the constant drip. Uh, I, well, I mean, I'm, I've been going on for a while here. I mean, what did you? What was your perspective on how all this stuff kind of unfolded? Well, you know, um, it just seems that every couple of days, or maybe a week at most, goes by before you see another ha like headline in your Twitter feed or just you know anywhere where you're talking with your coworkers. It's like, oh man, WikiLeaks they leaked another bit of Hillary Clinton's emails, or WikiLeaks they leaked another bit of this or that or varies and sundry from the election. And I, you know, personally for me, it's just like, oh, another one, like. How is this one different from the leak that they just leaked before? And what are they saying about this? And, you know, when you get into the nitty gritty of it and you look at the coverage, a lot of it is so personal and petty. Like John Podesta, like put down so and so, or, you know, like the, the little dramas between all these little players to the point where it's like, mm, you know, I, I could see what WikiLeaks is trying to do, but because they release everything en masse and because everything is such a huge info dump, it's really hard for just the average person to look at what they're doing and pick out anything other than, holy crap, nothing I own is safe. Can you just imagine everything, just everything being dumped onto the internet and thousands of people just sifting through everything that you've ever written just one-off off-the-cuff emails or like g-chats or messages that you've sent on your phone so i think what wikileaks is trying to do you know in the beginning might have had great intentions but just the impact has been severely blunted by just the scope of like the scariness of all of it the other thing is that uh obama had his personal email revealed which is huge like First of all, I mean, I guess we all assume that Obama has like a personal email address, but for it to get released in this way was pretty big. And then also General Colin Powell had uh, his private email exchanges, you know, revealed through, I believe, the WikiLeaks uh, series of leaks as well. There's kind of like this coalition where you have like the anonymous people and then, you know, you and I were talking off mic earlier uh, about Assange, you know, he has his role in it. And then you kind of have like just the general hacking community, you know, out there. And it's kind of like, like what you just said is there's this air of kind of nothing is safe. There is no email that you can send. There is no text that you can send that won't eventually be revealed, which is kind of like bringing me to a point of like, okay, is this, 
is this going to destroy kind of our ability to even communicate? I don't know. At this point, it, it just seems like if you do it digitally, I, I, I'm basically my point is I'm getting back to the point where maybe it's just time for us to go back to audio. Just, you know, just call each other. I mean, I'm, I'm getting to the point. I have. Um, but your phone calls aren't necessarily safe either. Well, yeah, but here's the thing. Everything now is so focused on text. I, I I get the feeling. Now, if you're talking about from intelligence agencies, sure. But if I'm just talking about from hackers, everyone's so focused on text. I don't think you have as much to worry about if you just say pick up the phone right now. I mean, look. How many people do you know right now who make three phone calls per day? Mm, telemarketers. That's about it. No, I mean friends. I'm just talking about regular people. Yeah. Other than telemarketers, it's pretty much zero. I mean, most people, old, young, you know, in America, in Europe, Asia, most people are sending texts. And when they do hop on the phone, it's kind of like a quick checkup or some sort of like, you know, check in, you know, like now that you mentioned it, I'm trying to think of the last time where I did have three phone calls in a day and I can't remember it. So exactly. Good point. And so, I mean, but these are phones we have. That's the weird part. It's like it's not like the phone function got hobbled or, you know, the wireless companies kind of had to cut back. And so do we have to use text more? No, people have opted into this kind of text dominant world. So in, in terms of hacking, you know, maybe kind of like in the same way that some people think of security through obscurity, which I don't think is like a perfect solution, but it can be helpful. Uh, the idea of security through obscurity, meaning kind of keeping yourself scarce off of, you know, information networks. The idea of kind of just switching to a different platform to handle anything that's sensitive. Sure, that probably won't keep your information out of the hands of the intelligence community who are kind of, you know, as we now know, thanks to Edward Snowden, they are basically monitoring, you know, a lot of that traffic. But in terms of just your run of the mill hacker, I, you know, I think it's pretty unlikely that WikiLeaks, I mean, unless we're talking about a voicemail, I think it's pretty unlikely that Wik WikiLeaks will somehow get their hands on a recording of you, you know, calling up, uh, your cohort somewhere saying, oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, this is Vic. Uh, yeah, we're going to kneecap that uh, person over there at the other organization there. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, that's not going to really come out, you know. So if you want to do that safely, make a phone call at this point. No. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, you could take that one step further and you can make a phone call and say, hey, let's meet in physical space and then, you know, actually meet someone in physical space and talk to them like one on one. Ew, like, human contact? What are you, you're going a little far now, I think. That's, that's, that's a, little, a little too far. You know, it's kind of interesting because when the telephone was invented, it was just amazing to hear someone's voice and to be able to talk to them. Because talking like like you and I are talking through microphones and through amazing technology, like that was considered revolutionary and groundbreaking and way better than something like letters, which was, you know, primarily how humankind uh, has communicated ever since we got a postal system working. And now, now that we can text instantaneously, it's like we've gone back to a culture of letters as opposed to a culture of conversation, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I agree. And I'm actually going to bring up an, an example. I hope this friend isn't listening. If this friend is listening, I'm sorry. I'm not going to name you, but you know who you are. Um, 
it's now gotten to the point where I think people are almost annoyed if you call them. I remember not too long ago that it was very normal to simply pick up your phone and I'm not telling make a cold call to a stranger. Call your friend, dial them up, ring them, and either you'd get that person or you'd get the voicemail. And if you got them, if they happen to be around to answer, you'd pick up, they'd pick up, and then you'd have a little chit-chat and, you know, move on. It is very clear to me now that if you simply call someone without texting them first, it's almost considered rude. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely 100,000 gajillion percent right. (laughs) And when did that turn happen? I mean, when did it – like, I feel like maybe when I was abroad or something, something changed. But, like, when did it become rude to just give your friend who you're very cool with, who you know, a call? A cold call. I have no idea because now that you now that you mention it, the etiquette now is to like text someone like a really shoot text and be like, hey, um, do you have free time? I need to call or like, when can you chat? And you have to schedule it in advance. Right. Whereas I used to have my friends, especially in high school, when we had like the dumb phones, not the the smartphones. But, you know, we're still all carrying a phone and we can text if we have the patience to just hit the same button five million times before we get a word out. Um, but I used to get phone calls from my friends all the time and we would chat for hours and hours and hours. And now it's just, well, if you want to talk to someone for that amount of time, you're going to Skype them. You're not going to call them. Oh, maybe we'll FaceTime because then you can actually see them. But if you just want to pick up a phone and call your friend, most of the times, the only time it's okay is if you're going, hey, I'm here. Where are you? Right. Or like, hey, I'm waiting for you. So let's just chat for the two minutes that it'll take you to actually meet me as you walk over. Okay. Here, here's where I'm going to get into the really, I shouldn't go here, but I'm going to go here. And I hope this friend isn't listening, but I have to go here. Uh, <laughs> this one particular friend has a habit of showing me the texts from other people. In other words, saying, wow, look at what this person wrote. Or, oh, no, I am going to prove to you that this is what this person thinks. This is what they privately texted me. And at a a certain point, I said to the friend, I said, look, this is, you know, I I like good gossip. You know, I I like this access (laughs) you're giving me. But this is not cool. You shouldn't be showing people – you shouldn't be showing a text that someone thinks is private to someone else. When someone sends you that text or that email, they're assuming for all intents and purposes, unless, you know, it's a business thing or they say something really out, you know, out, outlandish or insulting, they're generally expecting that it's a private conversation between you and that person. I think we're – Maybe not you, but I think lots of us are guilty of doing that in the heat of the moment where you get a text from someone and you're like, can you believe that this person texted me this? And you turn and you show them that text on on your phone. Like, I know I may have done that in the past. Uh, I try not to because of what you said. But I see something on Twitter sometimes where people will be like, oh, here's this text between me and my dad. And look at all the funny stuff my dad says because he doesn't know what technology is. And which you know, is not cool. That's, that's a violation. You know, it's not cool. Yeah, no. And you're putting it on social media, so yeah. it just lives there forever. And then everyone is laughing at this person's father, or you know, relative. But then you know, that's kind of on a he he hoo hoo ha ha level. 
there's there's some things where people, you know, even though they take the time to, you know, kind of scrub the person's name from the top of the text so that you can't know who exactly who it is, you know that this person has had this conversation with, let's say, at person right. on Twitter. Right. And they're just putting this person out on blast. Like, look, look at this thing that someone sent me, and this is something that proves my point about X, Y, and Z. I, I bring all that up because – in relation to WikiLeaks, I think what this is all pointing towards is the normalizing of leaks, the normalizing of the exposure of information with essentially no consequences, whether it's emails, texts, you know, Snapchats, whatever, whatever the message is. If it's shared privately, it seems like we're moving into a space where there's essentially no cultural or social backlash for disclosing these supposedly private messages. Or pictures, because, you know, sometimes a friend will send me a picture and the way at least iPhones and messages work, if you send someone or like if you are in the messages app and you take a picture and you send it to someone, it's not necessarily saved onto your phone. It's just saved in your conversation. But... Like, let's say a friend sends me a picture of themselves. I can literally just, like, save their picture onto my phone and they would never know that. That's that's freaky. Yeah. And so with the John Podesta thing, with Hillary Clinton, WikiLeaks, it, it just seems like there's very little outrage, uh, very little kind of uh, admonition of WikiLeaks with regard to, OK, hey, this is interesting information. This is possibly valuable information, but this is inappropriate. No, it seems like we've moved past that both in political, business and personal. To to the point that you said, it's not just leaking things that are important or leaking things that have particular significance or impact. It's leaking everything. It's just a flood and a torrent. There's no like we leaked this one email because or like a couple of emails because in context together, they paint a picture that you as the public should be informed and worried and concerned about. It's just everything. So, you know, it's kind of fostering this sense that it's okay for everything you ever do to be public. So speaking of leaks, let's now turn around and contradict ourselves in the most hypocritical way and talk about <laughs> Snowden, Edward Snowden. I think primarily what I want to touch on is, did we forget about Edward Snowden and why? Um, just to refresh anyone who was, you know, I don't know, living uh, in Antarctica, you know, just maybe avoiding the news. Uh, back in 2013, Edward Snowden uh, flew to Hong Kong after leaving his job at the NSA in Hawaii. And he then revealed thousands of NSA documents to the journalists at The Guardian, primarily Glenn Greenwald and uh, filmmaker Laura, Laura Poitras, and uh, I think Ewan McCaskill. And that was 2013. First, the documents were released and, you know, a number of re revelations came out about how intelligence agencies are monitoring the U.S. population, how the intelligence community essentially kind of pushes some of the biggest telecom companies and uh, tech companies pushes them to work with them to kind of, you know, help disclose user information that many people had assumed that, you know, you would need like a court order to get some of this information. So he disclosed a lot of these kind of programs that were in effect. And then he went on camera, did his interview, and then he, you know, fled 
to Russia. There was kind of like a little manhunt. They thought he was going to South America. Then, then there was kind of, well, before he left, there was kind of like these rumors. Oh, was he selling our secrets to the Chinese? And then he left and went to Russia and they were, oh, well, is he selling our secrets to the Russians? None of us know what's really going on with the guy in his head, but I mean, the way he's carried himself since 2013 leads me to think that, you know, whatever he's, he's done that you may or may not believe is illegal. I, it doesn't appear that his intentions are malicious based on the things he says in public. So that was 2013. And then in 2014, uh, Laura Portress took the footage that she compiled uh, after you know interviewing Snowden post NSA document release, uh, as well as other footage that kind of paints the entire picture and released that in the form of a film called Citizen Four. And that was 2014. And now um, we're kind of we're in 2016 and we have all these leaks. People are getting hacked. And it seems like kind of like Snowden is almost an afterthought. And so that's why uh, this summer when Vice uh, released a new I guess it was like 22 minute program uh, featuring Edward Snowden, it came as a surprise to me because it just seems like it's just it, he seems like he's disappeared from the public conscious. It, it, like there's been very little discussion about him. I mean, there's been some talk of him in the debates, the presidential debates, but generally he doesn't seem to hold the same central position that he held, held before as kind of like this guy who facilitated the exposure of what our intelligence community is really doing. So Vice came out with this program. And you can watch the full episode on YouTube right now. And it's called State of Surveillance. And in this 22 minute program, he kind of goes back over like what he did and why he did it back in 2013. But then he takes us down a road that just, I don't know, might freak you out if you're not really up on some of this stuff. He essentially shows how someone's smartphone can be just as insecure as a computer. And he tracks. Uh, I mean, they set it up. It's, you know, they, they do it in a very kind of like, I guess, enclosed fashion. It's, it's, they didn't just like pick a random person. Uh, but they basically show how he shows how easy it is to hack someone's smartphone. He, he not only tracks the person around the city, detailing their location as they move from place to place. But then at one point in the show, he actually shows how you can turn on the person's camera you know, that little that front facing camera that, you know, when you're looking down at your smartphone screen, that's pointing up at you. You know, a lot of people put tape over their people. Some people put tape over their webcam on their laptop. But for some reason, a lot of people don't think to do the same thing on their smartphone. Well, in this program, Edward Snowden shows just how easy it is to do the same kind of hack on your smartphone camera and peek at you while you're looking down at your data, unaware that you're being watched. One of the pieces of equipment he used is an uh, IMSI, an IMZ catcher. That's terrifying, by the way. The IMZ catcher, that's just terrifying. Yeah, it stands for International Mobile Subscriber Identity. And it basically intercepts mobile phone traffic and it tracks the movement of mobile mobile phone users. So that was a, a very kind of startling demonstration. And it was also a refresher from Snowden that, hey, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about and he's still around. So why did we forget? So to your point about whether or not we've forgotten Snowden, I have to admit that for the last year or so, my image of him has mostly been like the kind of slightly laggy pixelated face on a web conference. 
uh, like Skype ca- video camera at places like South by Southwest or random conference held on security by like, I don't know, someplace like Reuters or Bloomberg where he comes and he basically swoops in like a, like a eagle ninja on, on security and says like some very technically, uh, dense things and then, you know, makes a couple of statements and then logs off again. Like it's, you know, aside from the initial leak and when he was doing a lot of interviews, both some comedic in nature and some, you know, very serious in nature, I just don't think he's been talking as much. Um, what I think when I say have we forgotten them, I'm thinking more so about the media. It seems like the media, mm. like in 2013 and at least for the next year after, the media was all over this guy, his case, meaning, you know, will the U.S., you know, try to make extra efforts to go after him? And, you know, will they cut a deal to, like, give him some sort of ability to come back to the U.S. without immediately being locked up? The media was all over it. And I, it just seems like from 2015 on, there's been much less talk about Snowden, the documents he's, he released, his case. Thinking about how the media has forgotten Snowden, it's kind of messed up given how much he talks about and cares about how journalists can protect and maintain their privacy. He like came out, I think, a day or two ago saying that journalists are increasingly a threatened class when we think about the right to privacy. Yes, I can give you tips on how to protect your communications, but you are going to be engaging in an arms race that you simply cannot win. You must fight this on the front pages and you must win if you want to be able to report in the same way you've been able to do in previous centuries. And that's not the first time he said something to the lines of, you know, reporters need to be the first people who have their uh, cell phones protected or, you know, have their privacy protected because they're doing really important work in informing the public about certain things that the public deserves to know that people want to keep hidden. So, you know, it's kind of not nice that Hmm. the media has, you know, basically thrown him under the bus when he's just trying to help everybody out. He's like one of the few people who still believes that the media has power. Or isn't completely evil. Well, there is also some pressure, I think, from the U.S. government and many politicians to essentially look at him as some sort of traitor. Everyone has different views on this. For the presidential candidates, both uh, Trump and Clinton have both essentially called him a traitor and they want to bring him to justice. So on that front, there's not much difference between the candidates. But, you know, just among regular people, there seems to be a much less harsh view towards what he did because, look, he exposed things that we all would like to know. I think the issue is that not much has been done, you know, in, in the wake of mm. his, his release, uh, or the, the leak of, of his documents. Um, I do know one interesting development that came out of it is that Glenn Greenwald and a few of his cohorts moved on from The Guardian and they teamed up with, um, a Silicon Valley investor. And they started The Intercept. And The Intercept is, at least initially, seemed to be based on kind of, you know, the release of more of these documents and the information contained therein, as well as other investigative reports. The Intercept is around. They're doing good work. And they're, I guess, prosecuting the case for more transparency from the intelligence community 
particularly with regards to the American public. But in terms of our laws, I think, um, you know, not, not much has changed. Well, you know, you'd think that there would be incentive for congressmen to change things if, like John Podesta, they can find everything that they've ever emailed up for public public eyes to read. But, you know, he had a really interesting point in the HBO and Vice uh, documentary where he says, at least in terms of the presidency, there's no incentive for them to have those laws changed. Because I think the crux of what he was saying was that it gives them power in that particular office. And because it gives them power, and because the president has such influence over how we perceive things, like Obama going out and saying, you know, with all of his cool cachet that Edward Snowden did something wrong. Well, that's powerful enough for people to immediately have, you know, at least 50% of people to go, well, oh, this guy, you know, he's not as good as he thinks he is. So actually, I feel like we actually skipped over something. I do remember like there was a part in the Vice uh, documentary where they actually do remember, uh, mention that there was some action that the White House attempted to take on this whole thing. Right. So after all of this stuff went kablooey and, you know, everyone realized they had a PR nightmare on their hands, the White House actually released two reports and they put it together, their favorite thing to put together, a task force. And so this task force came, came up with about like 40, 46, you know, in that range of recommendations. And what they reveal in the documentary is that only three of them were adopted. It kind of adds to Snowden's point that there's no real incentive for the presidency to basically enact any of these because it lessens their own power. You know, the other thing in the documentary that I found particularly telling was that if you as a person, try to do the obscurity route, like you mentioned earlier, where you just try to take everything of danger that could potentially be compromised against you out of your life. Well, Snowden goes and he opens up the smartphone and, you know, he's showing the the vice guy. He's like, oh, look, this is the motherboard. And here's the here's the camera for your selfie. You just take a soldering iron and just pluck that out with some tweezers and, oh, look, here's the camera for the back of your phone and just take that out, too. And, uh, oh, here's the microphones. Let's just take those out. And the guy is looking at him and is just like, well, how do you do phone calls then? You know, is this anything better than an iPod Touch? And Snowden just says, well, well, what you have to do then is just take your, you know, like the iPod head, um, the iPod headphones with the the microphone in it. Yeah, that's how you talk to people with your phone. I was like, what's the point of that? Yeah, so basically to be truly secure, I mean, you, you lose all the conveniences that these devices and apps provide. And in the process, you also probably look like a freak to most people. But that's really the only way to be secure is to like go through some of these extraordinary measures. And I don't think it's sustainable for most people. I don't think most people are going to buy... Uh, you know, commercial smartphone or use a lot of these apps and go through all of the, I mean, how many people do you know who will even attempt to open their smartphone and remove, I think he removed three mics from that smartphone. Come on. I mean, like most people aren't going to do that. But just to get back to the point of what Snowden was mentioning in terms of why he released the documents is he brought up this notion of turnkey tyranny. And I think what he kind of framed was this notion of even if you like the like and trust the president who is currently in the White House, 
if the controls that are in place for the intelligence community and how we surveil uh, domestically and abroad, if those rules and structures are not done in a way that protects the American populace, there may at some point be a president that comes along who is perhaps not as trustworthy and not as perhaps friendly as friendly to the needs of the general public's privacy and personal liberty. And if that person comes into power and has these uh, levers of control that are incredibly invasive, uh, that could spell um, trouble and could put us in a, a very compromised position uh, even further along than where we are now. And so I, I think that was kind of like the central point of Snowden's entire act is this notion of turnkey tyranny, like uh, stopping the ability to enact turnkey tyranny. And so with that, we're going to turn our attention to the film directed by Oliver Stone titled Snowden. Why do you want to join the CIA? I'd like to help my country make a difference in the world. The average test time is five hours. I'm done, sir. It's been 40 minutes. 38 minutes. What should I do now? Whatever you want. The deputy director of the NSA offered me a new position. Can you tell me anything about it? <laughs> you know I can't. The NSA is really tracking every cell phone in the world. Most Americans don't want freedom. They want security. Except people, they don't even know they've made that bargain. Are they watching us? There's something going on inside the government that's really wrong, and I can't ignore it. I just want to get this data to the world. Hey. Hey. I feel like I'm made to do this, and if I don't do it, then... I don't know anybody else that can. And so that's just a taste of Snowden by Oliver Stone. Uh, the film came out in September. It's still in a few theaters. Um, it'll probably be on video soon. You saw the film, Vic Song. Yes, I did. What, what, so we, I think we made a little bit of fun of um, Joseph Gordon Levitt yeah, and his, uh, I guess, Im imitation, his vocal impression of Snowden. Uh, so now that you've seen the whole film, what did you think? I I have to apologize to Mr. Gordon-Levitt. I have to apologize to JGL. Uh, I, you know, after maybe 10, 15 minutes into the film, you kind of forget that he's doing the accent, and it sounds distinctly Snowden-esque. So there's that. Uh, I can admit when I was completely wrong. Yeah, I share your contrition. Um, I think, yeah, same thing around the same time for me, about 15, 20 minutes in, I just bought it. I stopped thinking that he was doing some sort of silly accent. He sounded like S Snowden. I got to tell you, it got so bad by the end of the film. He was essentially indistinguishable from Snowden to me. Like I, yeah. the guy really looks like Snowden by the end of the film to me. You know, that was that was shocking, too, because when I first saw the trailer, I was like, oh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt doesn't look anything like Edward Snowden, and he's got this dopey voice going on. What is that? What's happening here? But then, you know, you're watching the film, and suddenly his face starts to morph yeah. into Edward Snowden's. <laughs> and so when I finished the film, I pulled up Edward Snowden's picture, and I pulled up Joseph Gordon-Levitt's picture, and I was like, no, wait, they don't look anything alike, so why do I think he looks like him in the film? What is happening to right. my brain? You know, what, you uh, know what's happening, or what happened? 
acting. He's a good actor. <laughs> He's an amazing. That's what that means. So props to him. Props to uh, Oliver Stone. So uh, I think what isn't shared uh, is the well. There are good performances all around, but I think he did the best in terms of embodying his character. But I think the rest of the cast, although they turn in good performances, there's no way you'd mistake any of them for their counterparts in real life. We have uh, Melissa Leo, who plays uh, Laura Portress. We have Zachary Quinto, a.k.a. Spock, who plays Glenn Greenwald, who is kind of like the lead journalist on the entire thing. Uh, he na- he's now at The uh, the Intercept. And then Shailene Woodley, who plays Snowden's girlfriend, Lindsay Mills. Um, Shailene Woodley is in that science fiction series, right? Um, Divergent. Divergent, yes. yeah. What do you, what do you mm-hmm. think about that, by the way? Side note. Uh, Hunger Games light and Hunger Games is Battle Royale light. So you have two degrees of diluted, watered down crap. Ouch. Ouch. Okay. Okay. So moving on. So Shaylee Woodley <laughs> is in it as Lindsay Mills. So that's the cast. Um, there's also Nicolas Cage who plays kind of like this, I'm going to say jaded, beaten down, disillusioned intelligence guy who serves as kind of a semi mentor to Snowden. Yeah, yeah. I was shocked to see Nicolas Cage in here, but there's also Timothy Oliphant, too. And I was like, what? What, what is he doing in here? That was that was nuts. Yeah, he was kind of that. I almost felt like that he was jammed in somehow. Yeah, no, he really was. Because normally when when at least I'm a fan of Tim- Timothy Oliphant ever since watching Justified. So whenever I see him and stuff and he's just kind of a bit role, I'm like, what are you doing? People told me for years to see Justified and I saw whatever the box art. And maybe saw a trailer, and I wasn't really impressed. I was wrong. I, I, <laughs> I watched like a couple of episodes and fell into a binge hole. I love that show so much. I hate that it's over. That is just an amazing series. Check it out, Justified. Um, so back to Snowden. I think the, the big surprise for a lot of people who saw this film was that it wasn't basically just a retelling of the release of the documents or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, Catch Me If You Can style chase you know, of him running through Hong Kong and then, you know, trying to get to South America or then Europe uh, or or Russia, it actually takes you from the beginning of where Snowden really is coming from. And apparently he wanted to be, I mean, we know this, we've read all this information, but this was kind of like the first time we've seen it depicted. Uh, He wanted to be a soldier. You know, he, I think it was a Marine, right? Something like that. Something like super intense where they have to go jump over walls and claw, crawl through the mud and that sort of thing. I think it was either, either a Marine or a Navy SEAL. And in the course of his training, uh, through a freak accident, uh, he breaks his leg. Well, actually, he broke his leg in training and then he falls down from, from a bed and then that kind of exacerbates it. And he gets discharged, a medical discharge, so he can no longer be this kind of military badass that he wanted to be. So he opts to lean on his other skill, which is computers and the Internet. And so he finds him finds his way into the intelligence community. Uh, and initially, it you know, he's definitely kind of like all about serving, you know, the country. And, uh, you know, he's just very patriotic. Uh, apparently, like 9-11 was a big inspiration for him in terms of serving his country. But as he moves through the ranks of. Uh, the intelligence community, he begins to see that everything isn't, you know, being handled in 
I guess, what he believes uh, should, you know, would be a fair way. Yeah, I was kind of shocked. Like, I, I knew from, you know, everything that we've talked by uh, about so far that Snowden was a man who had very strict principles and ideas about what America should be in terms of, like, how we treat our democ- democracy. But I never really understood or, like, that part of his story where he was, you know, such a patriot and that 9-11 had such a huge fundamental impact on him or that he wanted to serve his country to the point of, you know, putting himself through physical exertion to that level. Like, I never got that part from him. And he doesn't necessarily exude that when you watch him talk because he's always so, I don't want to say, like, robotic-faced, but... He's very, you know, stoic right. the entire time. The whole patriotism thing of it, it never hit me until watching this film. Well, let me just jump in and just say, even getting this film made was difficult. According to Oliver Stone, they kind of had concerns about shooting the film in the U.S. And those concerns, this is in an interview with um, the Hollywood Reporter. He had concerns about shooting it uh, in the U.S. Um, because of some sort of... NSA, I guess, some issue that he thought might arise. And so they shot it in Germany and the film was financed by French and German companies. And according to him, American companies didn't want to touch it. Uh, I'll read this quote from an interview he did in The Hollywood Reporter. Oliver Stone said, it's a strange thing to do a story about an American man and not be able to finance this movie in America. That's disturbing. (laughs) And if you think about it and if you think about its implications on any subject, That is not overtly pro-American. They say we have freedom of expression, but thought is financed and thought is controlled. And the medium or the media is controlled. This country is very tight on that and there's no criticism allowed at a certain level. You can make movies about civil rights leaders who are dead, but it's not easy to make one about a current man. Wow. So, I mean, he basically just called the guy a civil right. He called Snowden a civil rights leader. Wow. That's that was that was a big burn. Yeah, Holy yeah. crap. I need to grab some ointment. That Ow. And well, you know, the thing about Oliver Stone is he has a long history as a filmmaker kind of tackling tough subjects. I'll just go down some of his uh, maybe more politically charged films. Uh, JFK, W, which was about Bush, uh, World Trade Center, uh, Nixon, Born on the Fourth of July, Natural Born Killers, and Platoon. And that's just the politically oriented films like that's to say nothing of great films like any given sunday i mean he's just Mm. like this really his track record is long and strong and the fact that he couldn't get this financed in the u.s and he felt like he had to film it abroad is a big deal i will say i didn't well okay let's just get this out there spoilers for snowden if you haven't seen snowden and you don't want spoilers now would be the time to maybe click pause and come back a few minutes later but Spoilers for Snowden. Uh, at the end, Oliver Stone appears. I didn't like that. Yeah, it felt a little kind of self-referential in the in the sense that, you know, like, oh, this is real. This is happening. This is the thing. Yeah. And, you know, there was a little bit of that with uh, Laura, Lauren Poitras. Laura Poitras. Uh, Laura Portress, the documentary maker of Citizen Four, where you're watching the film and she's filming him at the same time and you know it's fictionalized, but you also know it's real and that you can go and watch Citizen Four and watch the actual version of those scenes happening. Um, that in, like, I could kind of deal with that as, as how it served the actual autobiographical 
part of the story, but Oliver Stone coming in, that was just way too many levels of Inception meta. Yeah, he was like, it's me, hey, it's me, the director, right here. I'm I'm on history, making history here. Yeah, that was a little, it was a little much. But to go back to your point earlier, where you, you know, Oliver Stone is basically calling Edward Snowden a civil rights leader. Well, you know, that plays very much into the narrative of is Snowden a, is, is Snowden a traitor or a hero? And I don't know if I think the movie takes a stance on it. Um, I think it's very positive. Well, maybe not positive. I think it's very, you know, empathetic towards Snowden and it tries to show his reasoning and his understanding. And maybe it doesn't ask some of the harder questions of Snowden and of his actions, but I don't know that it, you know, falls on a side. What did you think? I disagree. I think it's a 100% (laughs) endorsement of Snowden. I think it is meant to turn the conversation in a positive direction. I, look, by the way, I don't think it's an, inac- an inaccurate portrayal of the story mm-hmm. or who Snowden is. Let me be clear about that. I think it, from what I know, is a, a fairly accurate portrayal. But I do think it is essentially a positive uh, spin, a positive entry uh, meant to you know help his case. Um, there's one part where... We get like a big brother kind of scene where, you know, his handler from the intelligence agency calls him for a meeting, but it's a teleconference meeting. And uh, Snowden, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt comes into the room and instead of it being a, a tiny screen, it's a giant wall screen. And his handler turns around and walks up to the screen and there's this giant face on this screen hovering <laughs> over the tiny, weak figure of Snowden. And I thought... Okay, okay, you, you're trying to do 1984 here. I, I see what you're doing, Oliver Stone. <laughs> right? Did, did you not? Yeah, get that? no, no, I got that feel completely. I guess what I was trying to say is that I don't know if they tried to portray him as balanced in the sense that you know, like there are things that you could question about Snowden and what he did in terms of like, did he really think his actions through? Uh, did he really have the impact that he thought he would? Is his faith in the American people judging him and his actions? Is that like naive of him to do with such sensitive information? I don't know if it asked those questions. One thing that I do think they, they did well was his, his belief that terrorism is an excuse. And that was a scene that like just jumped out to me when he's, when he's realizing and synthesizing everything that he's learned so far, where he says terrorism is excuse. The political and economic domination is the only way that I can serve my country. And that seemed to be like a mental breaking point for him. Yeah. Actually to go back to the vice documentary that came out earlier this year, there's actually a point in the documentary where they reference a government report that said when they went over all of the intelligence uh, surveillance activities here in the U S that collected all this data, they were unable to find one instance in which it helped to, you know, stop some sort of terrorist event. And I guess, you know, from Snowden's vantage point, and, and I would tend to agree that that's kind of an argument against this kind of mass surveillance of pretty much scooping. And I think he, I can't remember, I'm, I'm getting all this blurred. Like, I can't remember what was the Vice documentary and what was the <laughs> Snowden movie. But there's one point where one of them says, you know, something along the lines of, you know, if you're scooping up everything, 
how can you like really find like real targets? You know, you have too much data to sift through. And uh, I'm going to say that was the Vice documentary. You know, it's it's a testament because I'm also getting both of those things very mixed up in my head. Uh, and it's it's a testament to how consistent he is and everything and how he's presented himself. One of my favorite parts of the film, which is <laughs> I love this part so much. He is in bed having oh, sex with his girlfriend, <laughs> Lindsay Mills, Shailene Woodley. And she's on top and they're in the throws, the lusty throws. And <laughs> Edward Snowden looks over her shoulder and he looks at his laptop that's sitting across the room on like a, a dresser. And he realizes that there's no tape covering the webcam. And it's at that moment you can see in his face. He's like, oh, my God, is is one is someone at uh, the NSA watching us, watching me and my my woman, you know? have sex it also plays into the other the scene where in, when they have that fight in japan right before climbing mount fuji and when they did that i was like oh well now i know he really lived in japan but uh she has nude photos of herself on her laptop and she's just kind of editing them and he's like you really need to delete those but he can't tell her why right yeah so the the, the webcam scene was was hilarious the, the the take your nudes off the computer thing that i just i don't know maybe i'm just so security conscious that that just seemed like oh yeah right yeah, that's normal that's good advice the the webcam thing was just hilarious to me because she was just like oblivious to what he she was just like yeah and he's like looking he's like he had and his face looked exactly like snowden he had that that concerned stupid face it was hilarious and i'm just like dude you're in bed in the middle of it what are you doing anyway so i mean do you think i mean wrapping up do you think the film I'm not hearing many, you know, comments about it. The reviews were pretty lukewarm. Um, there's not much conversation about the film. Do you think it will have any lasting impact with regard to Snowden's legacy? Um, with regard to his legacy, maybe not. I think we're still trying to shape what his legacy is. I, you know, I'm going to go out there and say it. I am pro Snowden. I think he wasn't someone. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your, your, your mic's not coming through. I'm sorry. Oh. We have to cut the podcast now. Just like I'm just joking. I'm just oh joking. my <laughs> god! <laughs> so, I'm messing with you. Just, oh, I'm like, so gullible. <laughs> oh god, what a rude! Like, I'm that such was the a NSA rube. cutting in. Oh man, uh, what was I saying? Oh, anyway, I I feel empathetic towards him. I think he genuinely wanted us to know this as a whistleblower. I don't think he had. You know, I think if he had his druthers, he would be with his beautiful girlfriend and living a life where he's not in Russia of all places. Like that's for a guy who wanted us to not be hacked and to have all of our privacy to live in Russia is just like the biggest irony and cruelty. I don't know. Um, it, but it also makes a, a kind of perfect sense that that would be the only place that he would feel safe, uh, at yeah. least from U.S. authorities. It makes yeah. perfect sense. Uh, as yeah. for me, you know, positive or negative on him, I think what he did took a lot of courage. Um, mm -hmm. As he has said repeatedly, he was essentially living in paradise. He was getting paid a ton of money. He was under no pressure to do what he did. What he did was a crisis of conscience. And many of us, when put in the same position, I think, might not step up in such a fashion. We might just toe the line. 
So what he has done, I don't know how history will look at him. I suspect history will ultimately look on him in a positive light. Um, how this whole thing ends in terms of justice and punishment or lack thereof from the U.S. government, I think that will have a lot to do with how his legacy, you know, is formed. Mm -hmm. But in the minds of the people, the U.S. people right now, you know, people in academia, media, I just think a lot of people who are kind of connected to what's really going on in Washington, in the intelligence community, in media, you know, in, you know, with regard to our privacy and our civil liberties, I think a lot of people look on him in a positive light because they know how much courage it took to do what he did, even though I think there may be some misgivings about, you know, his flouting the law and kind of like betraying mm. the trust of his handlers. That aside, what we found out, I think, was big enough that, yeah. you know, a lot of people basically are giving him a pass and looking on what he did as a courageous act. And I think that's how he'll be looked at in history. It's another thing that I think puts him in stark contrast to what some of what WikiLeaks is doing, because he had a very sharp, focused message that he wanted to get out, as opposed to just, you know, I don't want to say willy nilly, but just inundating everyone with leaks. What he did was, you know, for the most part, I believe, very concentrated on a singular issue that he wanted us to know about. Good point. Yeah. With WikiLeaks, and I'm not ca trying to cast any aspersions, but, you know, with WikiLeaks, it does seem like it is more of kind of like an anarchy kind of mm -hmm. uh, narrative. Like, let's just toss all the info out and let the chips fall where they may, where, as you said, uh, Snowden's uh, movements, his actions seem to be more guided by a moral compass and kind of like wanting to make sure that the U.S. people still had some control over its government. Again, like, you know, sometimes people forget we're not, you know, beholden to the government. The, goal, the government is supposed to be beholden to the people. They're supposed to work for the people. And I think part of what he was doing was an attempt to remind us of that. And with that, we will call an end to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. You can access on the internets at marsmagazine.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash marsmagazine and subscribe to the podcast at uh, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, SoundCloud. Like us, uh, subscribe to us, and uh, star us. Only if it's four or five stars. Anything lower, please, please move on. Uh, with that, uh, this has been a Dario Strange with Vic Song, and we will see you in the future. <laughs> <laughs>